This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Welcome to the Center for Sports Studies podcast. My name is Brandon Podgorski, Professor of Sport Management at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to this week's podcast. On today's podcast, we have a recorded interview with sports science consultant Adam Virgil. We'll discuss his career as a performance coach in the NHL and his recent contributions in the field of sports science. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brandon. It's a pleasure. It's our pleasure to have you. Um, we're excited to have some somebody with some hockey experience. Um, we're a pretty big hockey school here at Trine now that we've got four teams. And we're going to jump in because you caught my eye with your work in putting together some information about combine performance and, and overall performance in the, in the NFL. And we're going to get into that. Before we do that, tell us a little bit about about your background and, and what you're doing now. Yeah, certainly. Um, like um, a lot of these students here, I, I'm, I was in exercise and movement science. I went to the University of Vermont it, kind of crazily uh, right after I graduated from there um, in undergrad with an exercise and movement science degree. Um, I got hired that summer by the New York Rangers as an assistant strength coach. And one of my duties um, was to help manage the data collection. So I knew that there was data collection going on to begin with. I, through my program um, in exercise and movement science, I didn't have much exposure to really data at all. I was thought I was taught really well how to cue and coach athletes through programs and periodize. Thought I was really good at that. So it was kind of a new world to me when I entered um, the Rangers environment, even though I had that assistant strength and conditioning coach title, it wasn't, I guess, a traditional strength coach. Through that, I got fascinated, I guess, by the data. It was, like I said, it was something that, that shocked me a little bit with, with how it was being used and what it looked like. And uh, that opened a lot of curiosity, a lot of curiosities for me. So I started exploring it a little bit more than maybe I should have, um, or than I was as, than I was expected to. And uh, that ended up making its way to the head strength coach and to coaches on the team at different points. And eventually I was doing more of the sports science or data management, visualization and interpretation stuff than the on the floor SNC coaching side of things. Mm -hmm. And then I became the team sports scientist. They pretty much asked me what I was spending all my time doing on the computer and then to write a job description for it because it was perceived as valuable. So uh, I spent six years uh, with the Rangers and now I'm doing my PhD at the University of Vermont, coming back to my old uh, stomping grounds here where I'm technically it's a human functioning and rehabilitation sciences program, but my focus is on sports science. You know, this is fascinating to me because we hear a lot about like data or analytics and it's usually like on the, on the player side, as far as, you know, I I'll say re recruiting, but um, you know, trying to find value in players that maybe um, we can get a little bit cheaper, kind of the money ball effect than, than going out and trying to find big stars, but data plays a pretty big part in strength conditioning. So explain that a little bit. How are teams and organizations and coaches actually using data on the strength conditioning side? Yeah, the first thing to know is it's super context dependent and organization dependent. Each, uh, each organization has a different budget and they choose to use that in different ways. So the technology available will determine what you're able and not able to do um, to a certain extent. And then the people and the staff that you have on board will also determine what you will or will not be able to do 
um, just because if you're imagine, you know, a collegiate setting, you're one strength coach with, uh, you know, 500 athletes trying to do some sports science stuff, it would be a real hassle unless you have some really, really good systems put in place to get a little bit of information. So, but with that being said, uh, we use sports science to monitor player progression through, through their training, whether or not the player or athlete is meeting the expectations that we have for them or what we would expect to see. So that might include what they're doing in training and how that progresses and also their response to, to the demands of training. And a layer on top of that is before the training commences, even you might do some testing or capturing of information to figure out what that training should look like in the first place when you're kind of performing a needs analysis or looking at the sport or the activities that the athlete will participate in and where they're currently at and figuring out whether or not they're capable of meeting those demands. And if not, where their weak points are for meeting those demands. So it can kind of take a lot of different shapes. And right now I know training load monitoring is a big thing. We do look at athletes training loads. It's, there's a big difference between what you're able to look at and what is able to be done in practice, depending on your culture and your environment. Cause a lot of the training load that accrues during a sports season is when they're playing their sport, which is generally determined or the practice plans are generally determined by the coaching staff. So if you have a really good relationship with the coaching staff and you're able to, I guess, adjust training loads, if you will, if it makes physiological sense to do so, then that's one thing, but oftentimes it's not something that's, that's practical in, in many environments. So we do do that. And we try to coordinate with the coaches and just make sure that the players feel like they're playing well, the coaches feel like they're playing well. And if we need to make training load adjustments per se, or adjustments to programs, um, we'll do that. Even though there's not sound research saying like you should do this or that when certain circumstances come up, it's just based on, on the feel that we have about the athlete and the context or the situation. So I did some strength conditioning work. We were talking about this before we got on the podcast um, a little over a decade ago at, at one of my one of my various stops. And I'm going to assume what you're doing was probably a little bit more sophisticated than what we would do where the athletes would just mark on the log, put it on the folder and then pick it up every time they come into the gym. I'm assuming you're probably collecting some different data and using it a little bit different than than we did, you know, in the past. Well, yeah, to, to, a, to a certain extent, but that's mostly just because of technology. I mean, mm -hmm. the process in, in our collegiate environment right now is more or less the same as what yours was because we don't have that many staff here. Uh, with the Rangers, it was, it was a different story. But right now at the University of Vermont, if you could picture like we're, we keep uh, 10 meter sprint times on the ice hockey athletes. Uh, once a week, we have them do 10 meter sprints. It's integrated into their training program. And I'm like a sports scientist or myself is running the timing gates to make sure that they're operating cor correctly. And you can envision this. An athlete does some trap bar deadlifts or some exercise. They go over and they do a 10 meter sprint. I'm standing there and I yell out the number to them. They hear the number, they go to their sheet and they write it down. And then the next athlete goes. So it's kind of, it's a similar process just with technology being involved. And I think that we're really fortunate as a staff to have very trustworthy athletes or we feel are very trustworthy. And also our director of athletic performance here, Mark Hickok has done like an incredible job with building a culture for this environment or for us to be able to collect this information 
So I think you kind of hinted at it a little bit earlier. You said you didn't necessarily go to school for kind of the, the data science part of kind of strength and conditioning. Um, so what was it about it once you started working in it where something just clicked and was like, wow, this is fascinating. I, I really want to kind of get my arms around this. I think that there were a couple components working together for me at that time. The first was uh, when I got to the Rangers, I wasn't a, a hockey guy. I didn't really, I didn't skate before that. Now, now I know how, because um, I had to, <laughs> to know how it feels so I could kind of resonate with the players a little bit. But um, I didn't know anything about hockey. And then I didn't know anything about sports science. So I just do, did a deep dive in, into research and figuring out, you know, what should hockey training look like? And then what I saw in practice, some things were very similar to what the research looked like. Some things weren't. And then the sports science information that they were collecting were playing roles into why things weren't directly correlated. And that was, I was kind of like, oh, why is that? Like, so when this number changes, will the programming change? And that whole process of understanding how the data or information that was being collected impacted the programming and what we decided to do on a daily basis was just fascinating to me because I knew how to make, make decisions just based on what I saw on a sheet of paper or how to periodize a program. But using information real time to impact decision making was was really cool. So that's kind of what what drove me to continue to explore and learn more about sports science. How difficult do you think it is for a student coming out of college to work in, in the strength? We'll stay with the strength conditioning space if they haven't had a lot of experience in it, kind of like you talked about with hockey and having to learn to skate, do you think it's a little bit more of a, of a hill they have to overcome? Um, or, you know, do you feel like you've got enough education to, you know, come out of school with your degree, get your CSCS or whatever certification, and then be able to apply it to any sport? I felt that from a program perspective with my curriculum, I was able to apply but every kid feels this way coming out uh -huh. of school. You know, I, I was the best strength coach in, in the world. <laughs> I knew everything about anatomy and physiology and I could program. I make a perfect program for anyone. Yeah. Uh, but it, I think it depends on the curriculum and what's introduced and, and how that's gone about. But in general, I would say that things have, have been changing over the past couple of years with what's expected of a strength coach when they do take a position. Before, like when I was coming through and I started um, full-time employment. The expectation I don't think was to know how to do sports science things and collect information with technology and use like simple programs now like Microsoft Excel and Google Sheets and maybe like R or some other uh, advanced data analysis programs. But today I think that coming out of school it's almost an ex not coming out of school specifically but to get a job with a high performing sports team like in pro sport or with even collegiate athletics, I think that, that there's a certain expectation that you should be able to use technology and incorporate that in your programming, which requires you to, number one, be able to collect the data and then also interpret it, visualize it and disseminate it, which generally, unless you're really good at drawing pictures, is requires some use of technology. Well, if people go to your website, so it's adamvirgil.com, A-D-A-M-V-I-R-G-I-L-E, you're doing a lot of that stuff just kind of on the side, on the consulting, where you're able to put a lot of this data in, you know, you're working on your PhD, I'm working on my PhD. I can see a bunch of number and data and, and be able to kind of extrapolate it. Like, yeah, I get that. I think just a lot of people looking at it, you know, you go cross-eyed 
But you're able to put this stuff into like easy to understand infographics, which is what caught my eye on Twitter a few weeks ago. So how did you start? How did you get that skill set there? Because I look at that, I'm like, that is fascinating how you're able to do that. And I'm sure, you know, I could learn, but, you know, how did you come across that? That, That's a really interesting question. So tying back into the ring, I didn't know anything about ice hockey and I was reading research and some of the things that I was reading weren't, I wasn't seeing in, in the, in the programming. And like I said, there were reasons for that, very good reasons for that. But I just wanted to make sure that people understood the research because um, I, I know for myself, like I was a big basketball guy. So like I played basketball. I never really read too much research on basketball because I played all the time. I knew what it felt like. Like I felt like I knew a lot more about it, but when you don't know a lot about something and you take that type of deep dive into the information, um, it's just a different perspective, I think, from people that are in the, in the sport for a long time. So I wanted to try to disseminate that information. At first, I tried sending articles, be like, hey, have you read this paper? Um, no one would read them. And then I started writing like short word summaries and still no one wanted to read anything. And when I started making them into, into pictures, people would, would read them and, and we'd talk about them. So it created discussion and it created awareness about the information. And that's kind of how that skill set started to develop. Essentially, I had access to Microsoft PowerPoint because I was a recent student and it was free. So I just tried to make pictures in Microsoft PowerPoint and, and show them to people. And a lot of that is not, I mean, I know that it looks nice on the infographic stuff, but a lot of it is, you know, the authors are the ones, the papers, they're the ones doing the work and they're displaying their information in certain ways. And oftentimes I just steal what, what they've done with, with their permission, of course, and, and just repurpose it in a way, adding some colors to it. And that's part of the, you know, the publication process disallows some of those things. So just adding a little bit of flair, which hopefully creates awareness of the information and it just develops over time. Uh, at least the infographic skills are making pictures skills. So it doesn't sound like it was anything, you know, groundbreaking or you had to learn like some crazy new software. It was just kind of taking what was available to you and making the data into kind of bite-sized chunks that people could understand visually using PowerPoint and just kind of other software we use all the time. It, exactly. Wow. Exactly. And it's the same with the like Excel stuff and the Google Sheets stuff. It's the reason why I w- I'm pretty good at that stuff now is just because I had it at the time. It was free for me and it gave me a means to explore what I was trying to do. Just like PowerPoint with the infographics, I was trying to get information across. I had PowerPoint and that's what I used to create infographics. Now I'm pretty good in PowerPoint. Excel was um, a free Microsoft program that I had available. And I was like, all right, well, I kind of know how to use this thing a little bit. I created programs in it before. So um, I'll try to figure out how to look at the sports science data in it. And again, you just, a lot of it's YouTube stuff. Like you just, (laughs) you take one step at a time, you you have a goal and it's, and then, you know, you think it's going to be quick. And then each little, little step along the way, you have to do more research and what you thought would take you know, 10 minutes ends up taking like 30 days. But during that process, you, you learn so much about whatever you're trying to do. So what have you been able to do with this now? Have you been able to kind of parlay this into a business? Because I know if people go onto your website, um, they can apply for a member or they can buy a membership to some of the things that you're doing, right? Yep. It started out as not a, a business and I still don't consider it a business. People literally requested from me to pay for things. 
And that's the reason why there's any financial side of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, before it was just, I created a website to host the infographics because people at the Rangers said that I should share them with other people. And that's, was a, was a platform. And then this past spring, I taught my first class at, you know, during, during my PhD. So I taught my first class and COVID hit a great way to start. Right. Uh, so, um, everything's in person and then COVID hit and I was teaching a sports science class. And one of the things, uh, that I wanted people to do for the final project was create an interactive Excel experience using sports science information. So we were learning Excel every day. And once COVID hit and everyone went remote, they said, Hey, Adam, we don't have the resources we need to create this stuff. So can you shoot videos of yourself doing it? I said, yeah, sure. Like, where do you want me to put it? And they said on, on YouTube. And then eventually I shared uh, a YouTube video on Twitter or or something. And um, it got a response that I didn't expect. So that's where, and then people started asking questions. Hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? So I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to create these videos, build this stuff, and I'll put it on this website that I already have running with my infographics on it. So um, it's kind of a communal place where you can access all this stuff that I'm kind of doing. But I'm not really, I guess technically it's, it's, it's a business now, but I try to offer as much stuff as I can. Um, and I, I do have certain prices on, on things to try to make, because if I don't have any financial income from it, then I can't spend the time creating free stuff right. because then I'm just like in the hole and I, or I can't do my PhD. So just trying to figure out a way to make things work to continue to provide as much free content as possible for people. Well, again, I think it's a great way to visualize data. And, and as I've kind of alluded to it, that's kind of how I came across your profile is just looking at um, the study where they were looking at the relationship between the NFL scout, scouting combine and game performance over a five-year period. So I know you've done a lot and there's probably a, a number of studies that we could pick from, but this is the one I saw. Um, so I just kind of want to talk about that a little bit. We talked about it before the podcast a little bit, but you know, the, the study was fascinating as it was looking at the different tests that happened at the NFL combine. And if people don't know, you know, the four yard dash, bench press, vertical jump, broad jump, pro agility, and the three cone drill. And what they, the, the data was finding is that those top performers on those tests weren't necessarily maybe the best performers in games. So can you speak a little bit about that, about that study? Yeah, I, I believe so. I think it was Ron, uh, Jared Cook and Ron Snar and a couple other mm-hmm. people. Um, yep. And yeah, they just looked at, you know, the combine performances, which is publicly available uh, data and um, how many games I believe or snaps the, the players played. And yeah, they didn't find, find much uh, of, of a relationship in, in a lot of the categories of performance uh, combine performance with the number of snaps that people were playing and the games that they were playing. And there are obviously a lot of factors that go into how many snaps and or games someone plays, including draft position and um, their opportunities and injuries and things like that. But essentially, yeah, there, there wasn't too much of a relationship uh, with anything. And there could be a lot of reasons for that as well. Like, I believe where did I, I heard this somewhere? I hope that I'm right, but I might not be um, the 40 yard dash. I think how that test was created was because way back when someone measured that the distance after you kick the ball off, the distance you have to run to get to the person receiving the kick is 40 yards. Mm -hmm. So theoretically someone who can run to that person fastest is 
I don't know, more prepared to play football. But first of all, the kicking distances have changed and the game has changed a lot since then. So whether or not that test is appropriate, even in, even in its original context, context is questionable at best. And same thing with, you know, the other tests like bench pressing for uh, 225 reps for maximal reps. Well, for one person, a person that's not very big, that might be a strength test, <laughs> but someone else that's a larger person might be a muscular endurance test. So you're not even necessarily measuring the same thing uh, in, in different people. Uh, those are just a couple of examples, but test selection is, is I think really important when it comes to evaluating whether or not a, there is any relationship between athletic ability and performance in the sport. So it requires a really intensive analysis of what the sport requires. Football, especially each position is different. Having all the athletes complete all those tests, regardless of their position. I don't want to say it doesn't make sense, but it kind of doesn't. So mm -hmm. it's like an O lineman. When is an O lineman going to run 40 yards? I don't know, but yeah, so it kind of takes, uh, I think that a lot of the testing systems that have been developed just require a little bit more of an in-depth analysis of what each position does in the sport. And they should choose tests that are suitable that they think would potentially determine uh, potential to perform well at those positions. I, yeah, I think my favorite stat as I was looking through the data was that uh, no quarterbacks completed the bench press in the five years there at the study. So I, I don't know what that means, but I'm sure something's there. Um, so how much in your maybe professional opinion, do coaches, you know, we take the data and it, and it has a place. It certainly has a place, but does the eyeball test or just kind of a coach in their gut at times and just looking at a player on the field and knowing where they're supposed to be, or just the intangibles that they bring as far as intelligence, how much do you think that plays into also evaluating a player too? Cause you could, I mean, you can look at a guy like Tom Brady, who, I mean, it's famously, he didn't get drafted to the sixth or seventh round. And he didn't measure all that well, but now, you know, arguably he might be one of the greatest football players of all time. I have two things. The first is kind of going back to what I was saying earlier is all the tests, like, yeah, Tom, Tom Brady, didn't measure well at the combine, mm -hmm. but what does he do in a football game? Mm -hmm. He uses his head and he throws the ball. Neither of those things are measured um, at, at the combine. He doesn't move very much. And I think if you were to compare running quarterbacks or uh, running abilities of quarterbacks to one another, Tom Brady probably wouldn't rank very high um, on the list, um, which is reflected in his combine numbers a little bit. But um, the other side is I think the eyeball test is more important. Experience has a lot of value. More, I'd say that, I mean, you use data to inform decisions based on what you see. Mm -hmm. So as a coach, you see things. And then, and, and that's kind of how, how research happens anyways, right? Like you make an observation. And it's a scientific method. You, you make an observation and then you say, huh, you know, that, that, that's odd. Um, I, have an, I have a hypothesis. I think this is happening because of A, B, or C. Now let's test that and figure it out. And then that creates a data set or some information um, that may, if, if there is something valuable there, that you could use to better inform a decision made in that same context. But it all starts again with, with your eyes. So you're not saying here's, here's the data I have and um, we're going to run a, a model or, or an algorithm and, and it's going to tell me exactly what to do. It's kind of, here's what I'm, here's what I'm planning to do. Do I see anything that would, be, here's what I'm going to do based on my experience and my, and my knowledge. And do, is there anything in this data that tells me maybe I should make a different decision?
It's kind of the, the process that, that I go through in, in my head, at least. And, and this may be unfair to bring this up too, because it, it may not necessarily correlate with what you're doing, but you think about analytics in sport as well, and coaches using analytics for, for in-game decisions. And I think there's a lot of, and I think sometimes it gets a bad, a bad rap because I think a lot of times coaches use that data and it ends up working out well. But then, you know, you get situations where like the, um, the manager of the Rays pulls his pitcher out and then brings in the reliever because the analytics said to do so. And then all of a sudden, you know, um, guy gives up uh, a couple runs and, you know, World Series is over. It's, it's tough because it's, um, I understand both, both sides of it. Uh, I'm, I'm a believer in you, you need to take a, you need to strongly consider the context in, in the decision that you're making, regardless of what the data says. So, you know, maybe the data says um, this guy can't go past five innings and this data is collected over the course of, of an entire season. And that's great, but it's the world series or, or whatever it may be. And it's a different situation. This isn't a normal regular season game and it's not the average which is what you're looking at. Like the analytics say that he shouldn't be able to go over five, five innings, but this is, the situation is just very different. Again, I, I completely agree. You know, you, we, we use that data and we can use it to our advantage. Um, but, you know, I think as you kind of alluded to every now and then, you know, you kind of go with your gut, your gut, or you go with your eye and you make the best decision in that game. And I'm really kind of glad you brought that up. So if somebody wants to break into this field, you know, obviously you, you just kind of happened to stumble upon it and, and you really fell in love and, and now you're doing some really great things and you're advancing your education. But if somebody else wants to kind of get into this field, what type of degree do they need to be going after or certifications do they need to be going after? That's such a good question. I don't know. It's, okay. I, I, I would imagine like if you want to get into sports science, stuff, ex, there are a lot of fields that could work. Data science mm-hmm. should be fine. I think that we're still kind of wrapping our head, head around what sports science is and the definition behind that. Um, the NSCA or the National Strength and Conditioning Association is uh, bringing about a new certification that's geared for uh, people that want to be sports scientists. And that's coming out very soon. I think we're speaking in February 2021 now. And that might be something worth trying to get, um, as well as if you want to do strength and conditioning stuff, having a CSCS mm-hmm. might be valuable. Yeah. Um, but it's it's really tough. Something related to uh, data analytics or computer science or exercise and physiology. I guess that those are kind of the three big, big areas that you might want to look into. And, and whichever floats your boat, you know, should be should be OK. You should enable yourself to get into a position um, related to sports science, at least with either of those. And how important do you think experience is for college students who are, who are graduating and want to start working into this field, whether it be strength conditioning or, or the data science? Um, do they need to be doing some things now as far as like internships to, to better position themselves? Absolutely. Especially during college. Not, not like don't wait until after college is over. Every summer, any opportunity you have, you should be doing things because not because like it'll give you experience, but because you'll if you expose yourself to different environments and different experiences, you'll learn more and more what you don't like and what you don't mm-hmm. want to do, which when you get out, you'll have a better idea from those collective experiences of the direction that you should head and what you do want to do. And experience is, is definitely important, but that shouldn't be the reason for the internship. I guess, I guess it's how I'm defining experience, but experience isn't, isn't that important. I think it's more just exploring and figuring out what, what's right for you is, is a really big reason to, to do those types of things. 
And I should mention for me and in, in my story that when I was in undergrad, I, I had a professor, his name is Declan, Declan Connolly, and I, he, I did well in his class. And then he was asking me questions like, hey, do you want to help, uh, help me do Wingate testing on the UVM ice hockey team or, or whatnot? I didn't even know what Wingate testing was, but I was like, sure, that's, that sounds cool. And then those experiences were, I think those really shaped where I wanted to go because he would bring me in. He'd run these athletes through wing testing and he'd be pointing at numbers on sheets, be like, Oh, this guy's peak power is at you know, six seconds. It should be at three because ice hockey, you know, you got to be able to accelerate fast. And he, he would kind of teach me things about sports science. And it, the only reason why I was fascinated in that stuff was because of the experiences or the opportunities that I, that I put myself in. And then actually that same professor after graduation he's the reason why I got the Rangers job. I didn't go look for anything. I was just personal training, figuring out what I wanted to do. And he called me and said, Hey, Adam, I heard about this gig. I think you'd be a good fit for it. And then the next thing I know I'm moving to New York, but it's, it's through those experiences and in, I guess, quote unquote, internship opportunities where I kind of figured out, I think, where I started to figure out, you know, what I was interested in. And I'm not sure even if the Rangers called me without Declan and they said, yeah, you're going to be involved with, data collection um, and things like that. I'm not sure that I would have been interested in that if I didn't mm -hmm. have the experiences that I had during school. Well, I think it's a great point And it's something that we try to talk to our students about a lot. I mean, you're right. The, the experience is one part of it and it's a huge part of it. But, you know, you may think that you want to go into this one field and like, you know, my heart is set on doing X and then you get into it and you're like, ah, I don't know, maybe it's not for me. So, um, you know, I think as, as you elegantly put it, you know, kind of figuring out what you might not want to do is just important. It's getting that experience. So um, I appreciate it. that's great advice. And if people want to learn more about you and, and what you're doing and just kind of see some of the dashboards you put up and the infographics you put up, where can they find you? Yeah, they can, they can find me. I guess my email is, uh, let me backtrack. You, you said adam.virgil at gmail or at, uh, adam.virgil.com or no adamvirgil.com right that's my site all right adamvirgil.com is my site it's adam.virgil at gmail.com is my email address contact me there um, I'm pretty active on twitter which is at adamvirgil so as, as long as you just look up pretty much at like the way that my name is spelled um, online you should be able to find a way to contact me perfect and you can see how to spell his name in the yeah. show notes. So make sure you come and uh, check out the show notes and uh, check out our social media. Well, Adam, we appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, Brandon, thanks for having me. Uh, th this was great. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for our next guest on March 5th. As always, we'd like to say a special thank you to producer Josh Warnbacher for his work behind the scenes today. This is the Center for Sports Studies podcast, broadcasting from the Trine Broadcasting Network. For more information about the Center for Sports Studies, please visit trine.edu. Also be sure to like the Trine Center for Sports Studies on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TrineCSS. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.